0: Please, congregation, turn in your Bibles in the first place this evening to Psalm 34. We have the first 34 verse of that psalm together in connection with the passage from 1 Corinthians 10 and what we confess in Lord's Days 29 and 30 of our Catechism. Continuing on in our study of the means of grace, how God stoops down, He communicates to us. We come again to the reading of God's Word, the preaching of that Word, and to studying what it is that He is conveying to us in the Lord's Supper. Psalm 34, beginning at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear the fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Turn also to First Corinthians chapter ten. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 14, reading to verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, "'Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak, as the sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless isn't not a participation in the blood of Christ, and the bread that we break isn't not a participation in the body of Christ?' Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of Lord and the table of demons. Should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? There ends the reading of God's holy word. We turn also in our catechism Lord's Days 28 and 29. We'll read questions seventy-eight and seventy-nine responsively, and then I'll ask you just to follow along quietly in question eighty, as the answer is quite a bit longer. But questions seventy-eight and seventy-nine will confess together. Do the bread and the wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood, and does not itself wash away sins but is simply a divine pledge and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Question 79. Why then does Christ call the bread His body and the cup His blood, or the new covenant in His blood? And Paul used the words a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too His crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, He wants to assure us by this divine sign and pledge, That we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in the true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in His remembrance, and that all His suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. And then question 80, how does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through Christ's one sacrifice on the cross, which he himself accomplished once and for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. This, the Church of Christ does believe. dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it was indeed our Lord himself who said on the eve of his crucifixion, take, eat, remember, and believe. He said, holding the bread, this is my body which is broken for you, and likewise the cup. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And with these words, the Lord Jesus was communicating something profound to his disciples. He was granting them to taste and to see that the Lord is good, that he is so good that he gave his one and only son to be offered up as a sacrifice for us all. But history records for us the story of a certain Bertrand Leblas of Tournai, Belgium, who on Christmas Day in the year of 1554 had become so dismayed at Rome's corruption of Christ's words that on that Christmas morning he hurried over to the Catholic cathedral, having asked his wife and child to pray that God would bless what he had resolved in his heart to do. Having entered into the Catholic cathedral, this meek velvet manufacturer found a seat near the front of the sanctuary, near the altar up front where the priest was to consecrate the bread in such a way that those present believed that the bread had had become the literal body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at that moment, brave Bertrand Leblas jumped up from his seat, snatched the piece of bread out of the priest's hands, broke it into pieces. He exclaimed before the congregation, misguided men, do you take this thing, this piece of bread, to be your Lord and Savior? And with that, he threw the bread to the ground and stomped on it. Although escape was possible, given the utter shock and dismay of the priest and the Catholic congregation, brave Bertrand Leblas stayed put, nor that he might face the severe severe consequences for his actions. And although they demanded his repentance, as history records, he protested on the contrary, such that he glorified in the deed and that he would die a hundred deaths to rescue from such daily profaning the name of his Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Leblas was dragged to the marketplace where his right hand and right foot were twisted off with hot irons. And because he yet confessed him name of Christ and confessed that he was vindicated in what he had done, they removed his tongue from his mouth before hoisting him up with a chain to hang over the fire where he died remaining steadfast. To the end. Now, while we, of course, might not condone Bertrand's method or the manner in which he held to his convictions, we have good reason, at least, to share his sentiments, don't we? Because Bertrand LeBlanc was really rather a foolish bravery, at least understood what it is that we confess here in our catechism concerning the supper of our Lord. He understood that what was taking place in that Catholic cathedral, where the light of the gospel had been diminished for so many centuries... He realized that what was taking place, there was nothing less than a condemnable and a cursed idolatry. He understood that the people partaking in that idolatry had totally lost sight of what the Lord's Supper is really all about. They had had entirely lost sight of the word, of the gospel word, that that the Lord's Supper is all about celebrating the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ and the salvation which that once-for-all sacrifice has brought about for sinners like You and me. And so over against the erroneous teachings of Rome, the sacrament we consider this evening, the sacrament we hope we're willing to participate in next Sunday is in fact a supper and not a sacrifice. It's a sacrament that we administer at a table and and not at an altar. For every altar has been rendered null and void in light of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a supper wherein we as believers can be assured that what Christ did at Calvary he did for us. That that as surely as we see the bread broken with our eyes and the wine poured out as sure as we, we taste that bread and drink that wine that's how sure we can be. That in Christ we have received the complete remission the complete forgiveness of all our sins. This is what Christ is saying to us when We dine at his table. He says to us, dear sinners, eat, drink, and be assured. As David said when he was fearing for his life, so too Christ says to us in the supper that those who who have looked to the Lord are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Oh, taste and see it. The Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The young lions suffer want and they hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And so as we prepare our hearts to feast on his body and blood in the week to come, he would not have us come to his table doubtful that his atoning work has been applied to us personally. But rather knowing our weaknesses and knowing our infirmities, our Savior would have us to be assured that's the key word. That's the key word to unlocking the mystery of the Lord's Supper, assured. As we unpack these three questions, Mark Addicts, let's consider three things together this evening. First of all, what Christ presents in the Lord's Supper. Secondly, what Christ proclaims in the Lord's Supper. And then finally, what Christ promises in the Lord's Supper. Christ speaks to us in the bread and the wine, and he says, Eat and drink and be assured. That what I did at the cross, I did for you. Our catechism begins by asking us the question that really takes us to the heart of the matter, to that dividing line between true religion, which is pure and undefiled, and false religion, which is idolatry. Do the bread and the wine actually become the real body and blood of Christ? In response to that question, we confess the Bible's answer, No. No, just as the water of baptism does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so to the Holy Bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ, and this is in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. The sacraments, you'll remember, are those holy signs and seals which God has given us to see. They were They were instituted by God himself so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the gospel promise and and place his seal upon that promise. Boys and girls, you might remember how sacraments are like the king's signet ring, how how the seal left on a letter would testify to the reader that this letter was true, that its words were trustworthy, authentic, from the king himself. And such are the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But these Lord's Days alert us to the fact that throughout church history there has indeed been a great deal of confusion when it comes to what it is that's taking place at the table of our Lord. And so, if we are to rightly understand what the Bible teaches in this regard, it's helpful if we familiarize ourselves with some of the the errant views that, that continue to be held by so many today. The first wrong view, of course, is that of the Roman Catholic Church, as we'll see in question answer 80, that that teaches that the bread and wine are actually transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. It's called transubstantiation, that when the, the priest lifts up the host and says, this is my body, that miraculous, that bread is, is changed into the literal body of Christ. And so for that reason, they worship, they venerate that bread, because they believe that it is the body of Christ himself. And yet, boys and girls, the Bible teaches that not only is that idolatry to worship a piece of bread, but it's also a denial of Christ's real humanity. Jesus doesn't have a body that can be in more place, more than one place at once. But he has a body like ours, a body which we know has ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God. Another wrong, which the Lutheran tradition calls consubstantiation, teaches that that rather than these elements being changed into the body and blood of Christ, rather the the physical body of Christ is yet with and around or under those elements, such that they are simultaneously with and alongside the bread and the wine. But they can only affirm that because, like Rome, they also have an unbiblical view of Christ's body. To assert that that Christ's body can be everywhere present is really to, to rob us of our Lord's Day 18 comfort, that That right now we have a Savior in heaven who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he is a real human just like us. Because he knows what it is to be human. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with us, who can intercede on our behalf, who can mediate on our behalf. Because he is our natural brother, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, we have in heaven. And then find the third main wrong view that has been in church history, has been to assert that the Lord's Supper is merely a memorial and nothing more than that. According to proponents of this view, it's not so much that Christ is speaking to us in the bread and the wine, but rather, as we come, it is our testimony of faith to God, testifying that that we do believe that Christ died. It's an act of obedience that, that symbolizes our faith in Christ. And so it's not really a sign or a seal of a heavenly reality, It's in the midst of these controversies that our catechism conveys to us the wonderful truth of God's Word, that although Christ is not physically present in the Lord's Supper, He is nevertheless truly with us in the Supper by His Spirit. That by His Spirit, He lifts our hearts heavenward, where Christ nourishes and refreshes our souls for eternal life. And this is in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments, which serve to signify and seal to us the the promises of the Gospel, and so we can say that when we come and, and partake of the bread and the wine, Jesus really is presenting himself to us and, and all his saving benefits. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says the, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a, a participation? Is it not a, a communion, a fellowship in, in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a communion, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, you see, brings us into communion with Christ himself as as partaking of his body and blood is to partake of the benefits which, which flow forth from them. The bread and the wine serve to intensify our spiritual fellowship with our Redeemer. The language that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 10 is is steeped in the Old Testament language of of priests partaking on those sacrifices on the altar. He says that in verse 18, consider the people of Israel, are not those who who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Do they not have have a communion in the altar? Do they not have a fellowship in the altar? Of course, as those priests partook of those sacrifices, they also partook of that which those sacrifices signified, namely, They partook in the benefits of the forgiveness of all their sins as those sacrifices pointed them forward to that greater, once for all sacrifice to come. And so, here in his letter to the Corinthians, as the Apostle Paul writes to new converts who are still learning how to to navigate life in a fallen world and in a very pagan culture, Pastor Paul says, Fellowship with Christ, commune with Christ, don't have fellowship with demons. Have fellowship with Christ. Commune only with him. Here and elsewhere, Paul affirms that there are weaker brothers and stronger brothers. There's these debates in the church about partaking of meat offered to idols. And what Paul is saying here is that it's one thing to if you go to the butcher shop and, and you buy meat that may have been offered to an idol before. You don't know. That, that you can partake of that meat knowing that that meat has come from God and you can acknowledge God and give thanks to God for that meat. But Paul also has in view here the reality that in this pagan culture, these new Christians have neighbors who still hold feasts in the honor of these gods. And, and so now the question these Christians have in Corinth are, or what if my neighbor invites me over for a meal, and, and part of that meal requires me to participate in the rituals and the pagan dedication that comes along with that meal? And to that question, Paul says, No. You must not participate in that, since doing that is to be involved in in an intimate relationship with with the very demons who who hold their pagan neighbors in spiritual bondage. And that simply can't be squared, it can't be reconciled with what we believe it is that that takes place at the Lord's table, where believers celebrate the, the intimate fellowship with the one who redeemed them from that spiritual bondage. So as one pastor summarized what the apostle is instructing here, the Lord's Supper defines our loyalties. It, it identifies our deepest fellowships that when we come to the Lord's table, we, re- we recognize that our ultimate loyalty and our highest loyalty, our most infinite and intimate loyalty is to Christ himself and all other loyalties must be laid aside. And so as the Corinthian church gathered together Lord's Day after Lord's Day to To worship God and and to feast on the bread and the wine. They were declaring to the world that their citizenship was not here on the earth, that their citizenship was not ultimately in the city of Corinth. They were declaring that their allegiances no longer belonged to their closest unbelieving friends and and to their pagan cult from which Christ has saved them. But as they gathered together to partake of the bread and the wine, they were declaring that their Citizenship was in heaven, that their allegiance now belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Lord's Supper serves to remind and assure us that we are His and He is ours. As the Holy Spirit unites us more and more to His blessed body, as we reap again and again the saving benefits that that have come to us by His body having been broken, His blood having been poured out for us, And so we confess in the Belgian Confession that we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body and what is drunk is his own blood. But here's the key to understanding it rightly. The manner in which we eat and drink is not by the mouth, but it's by the Spirit through faith. In this way, we confess Jesus Christ remains always seated at God's right hand in heaven but he never refrains on that account to communicate himself to us through faith. For this bank we confess, is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself to us and all his benefits. At the table, he makes us to enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death as he nourishes and strengthens and, and comforts us as poor, desolate souls eating His flesh, He revives within us and renews us as we drink the wine. When we come to the table of our Lord, Christ presents Himself to us, all that He is and all that He has done for us. And as we commune with Him, He proclaims to us that there is nothing left for us to do. That there is nothing left for us to do for our salvation, but He has already done it all. It's already all been accomplished. As we confess and answer A, the Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. Here, our catechism highlights the wonder of the gospel word that in a world where every other religion and where the Catholic faith continues to say, do, the gospel says done. When Christ died on the cross, the death he died was a once-for-all sacrifice, whereby God's wrath was appeased, wherein all his elect were granted full forgiveness from all their sins. And this Christ proclaims to us whenever we sup at his table, I have accomplished all things necessary for your salvation, he says. He says, eat, drink, and be assured. Don't have any doubt in your minds. That what I did at Calvary, I did for you. The Lord's Supper proclaims to us in the second place, the Holy Spirit grabs us into Christ. who, with His true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father where He wants us to worship Him. The Lord's Supper reminds us again and again that it is to our advantage that Christ is in heaven at God's right hand, that He resides there for our good until the day of His return. Lord's Supper reminds us that we don't need to drag Christ's body and blood back down to earth because when we come to the table in, the, in faith, the Holy Spirit lifts our hearts up to heaven. He exalts us that we are seated at the king's table. Just as it was for, for ashamed and unworthy Mephibosheth, who comes from the slums of the kingdom of Saul, is granted to, to sit at King David's table always so too it is for us. Christ exalts us by His Spirit, lifts our hearts up to heaven to, to sit at the table with the King. But sadly and tragically, the Catholic Mass robs God's people of these gospel assurances. The Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven to the one sacrifice of Christ, but that, that Christ still needs to be offered for them day after day by the priests. And so they really renounce the cross of Christ. They almost go back to an Old Testament system where the priest, day after day, in that endless cycle, which never had an end of sacrifices, they really renounce what the cross of Christ is all about. And the Mass teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped, and so... The Mass is not only denial of Christ's one sacrifice, but it is also an accursed, a condemnable idolatry. And so, writes John Calvin, the Mass, however decked in splendor it may be, actually inflicts signal dishonor upon Christ. The Mass buries and oppresses his cross, it consigns Christ's death to oblivion. The Mass takes away the benefit which came to us from Christ's death and weakens and destroys the sacrament altogether. As always, you see, our catechism is zealous to defend the gospel of God's grace, to defend the gospel word, which says to us both in word and sacrament, there is nothing left that needs to be done for our salvation, but that Christ has accomplished all things necessary for us to be saved. And so, as Dr. Venma writes in his helpful little book on the papal mass, when the Roman Catholic Church attributes a propitiatory value to the unbloody re-sacrificing of Christ on the altar and the sacrament of the mass. It betrays the gospel promise. It betrays the gospel promise that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the sole basis for the believer's comfort. The betrayal has the most serious implications for the believer's assurance and heartfelt trust in Christ. In the Lord's Supper, you see, Christ proclaims to us the full victory of all, from all our sins. That we can indeed bless the Lord at all times, that His praise can, can continually be on our lips, because God in Christ has delivered us from our fears and has saved us from all our troubles. Christ bids us next Lord's day to taste and to see that the Lord is good. That blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. He says, "Oh, you fear the Lord have no lack." The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you believe that tonight? Do you see that, people of God, that in a world where people don't know the Lord, people don't, don't have strength for their day or hope for tomorrow, that in God's grace you don't lack a thing? That all you've needed for your salvation or your eternal security has already been provided by God's hand? For all these reasons, congregation, we have every reason to give thanks to God that Christ has has given to us not an altar, but that He's given to us a table. That we don't need to perform more sacrifices, but Christ has given us a supper whereby we can be nourished and refreshed as the blessings flow from His cross. This is the gospel word, the gracious word that Christ proclaims to us at His table he would signify and seal to us next Sunday that the promise of the gospel is indeed for us. Question 79, why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? And and because we know Christ to be a gracious Savior who comforts us in our doubt and despair, we we confess that Christ has good reason for these words. That as Christ was dining with his disciples, he wasn't being careless or, or thoughtless in his words. But rather in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments, Christ wants to teach us. He wanted to teach his disciples that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink for our souls for eternal life. But more importantly, and this I would stress you as you go home tonight and as you Go forth in the week ahead of you. Christ wants also to assure you. As you examine yourselves in light of the gospel, as you anticipate partaking of this supper, please know that Christ Jesus would would assure you by this visible sign and pledge, that you through the Spirit's work share in his true body and blood as surely as your mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance. Through this holy supper, Christ would assure us by his Spirit that you and I are so Joined to Jesus that all his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. In other words, the Lord's Supper assures us of our new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that no longer are we defined by, by who we used to be or the things we've done. But that it is as though Christ's suffering was our own. His Personal obedience is our own obedience in God's sight. What this means, dear saints, is that you need not come to the table of the Lord next Sunday with your heads hanging low. You need not come to the table hesitantly wondering whether you've worthied yourselves up enough to share in the body and blood of Christ. He would not have you come that way if you've placed your trust in Christ you not ever live in fear of God's judgment for as the psalmist says those who look to Christ are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed intimate communion and fellowship this is what Christ promises you and me when we come to the table that as we feast in the bread and wine and faith Christ by his spirit lifts our hearts up to heaven where he now is and he says to each of us eat, drink and be assured Be assured that what I did at the cross, I did for you. And this he does until he comes. Until he shall finally come again the clouds, we might see him face to face, commune with him forever. This he promises to do. And he promises that he's coming soon. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again this evening hour to thank you for the great grace you've shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God, for being so gracious as to stoop down to us, to meet us where we are in our hardness of heart and our weaknesses and our infirmities, to signify and seal to us with our eyes, with our tongues with our noses, that which we hear every Lord's in the preaching of the word. We behold your grace, because we know that you wouldn't need to speak to us at all. We do not deserve it. And yet, so great is the love that you have for us, that you would not only speak to us and say that you love us, but you'd have us to be assured of this very reality, they would have to be assured that when you see us, you don't see us for who we used to be or the deeds we've done. That you see the Lord Jesus Christ whose obedience has become our obedience, whose suffering is our suffering. That as we come to the table, we can confess in our hearts to the Apostle Paul that, that we too have been crucified with Christ and that the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in Jesus who loved us who laid down his life for us, that we are so hidden with Christ that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we too shall appear with him in glory. May we rest in this gospel word in the days to come as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come again to the table of Christ, that you would keep us from sin in the week ahead of us, that you would grant us grace to rest always and only in the promise that we might come next Lord's Day in confidence, not with heads hanging low, but with faces that are radiant and unashamed, because we trust in Christ to be our all in all. This we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.